Janix Playback, episode number 27. It's tearing up my heart when I'm with you. But when we are apart, I feel it too. And no Come on, Sean, here we go. And welcome to the Gen X Playback Show. It's your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yes, we are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And you are listening to In Sync. Yes, yes, you are. Because we would like to give a shout out to one of our towns cities down south also known as orlando florida the originating city of in sync the backstreet boys lou perlman that's right uh, lou perlman i know you were a big fan of lou perlman back in the day he was the mastermind and uh you know briefly on in sync i very easily could have played a backstreet boys song for orlando because yeah. that kind of was the hub for what became sort of an industry towards the end of the 90s. I mean, obviously there were boy bands before that, but it sort of took on kind of like, you know, heavy metal in the late 80s. The the boy bands really became a thing Mm -hmm. in the late 90s to the point where the industry was like, where can we find the next boy band out there? So, uh, but NSYNC was, and the Backstreet Boys, but I would say NSYNC for, they were like a meteor. I mean, they just came onto the scene what I thought was interesting about uh, NSYNC is that they actually, their, their first singles were not released in the United States. Okay. They were actually released in Germany. So they started. Yeah. I was very surprised to, to, to hear that because they kind of burst on the scene in America, but mm-hmm. they actually had been in uh, Europe for about, you know, three or four months before they even uh, started to do anything over here in the States. I was not aware of that. I was not following the, uh, the boy band trend coming out of Germany. Uh, at the yeah. time, I mean, this would have been what, like late '90s. This was '97. Yeah, is okay. when the, uh, the the debut album came out for I, for Insane. I I actually am surprised at how well that music is held up. Yeah, today it's, it's I I you, it's I, you moment you played that I started bopping up and down. That's a good song. It's a very good song. Yeah. So Insane, Orlando, Florida. Thank you for tuning in to the Gen X Playback Show. We are more than just the largest podcast in Nashville, PA. We are heard all over the all over the nation in the United States. We've heard, uh, you know. Uh, 11 additional countries around the world, including Brazil, that we just uh, saw jumped in there. So welcome, Brazil, if you're tuning in to this episode. But yeah, as we always take take time out every episode, we just want to thank our listeners. We get some good feedback from the people that are in our local area. And, uh, you know, we're so grateful that you join us week after week and listen to whatever it is that we decide to talk about. So we want to say thanks. And, you know, Scott, each week, as, as listeners, as you know, he, you know, always comes on. It kind of surprises me as well and plays a song from, uh, you know, representing a city from one of our listeners. And for the most part, I haven't been to most of these cities, but I have been to Orlando. And, I, you know, that's, I think, there probably aren't too many Americans that haven't been to Orlando. Yeah, one way or another, because there's so much to do down there. And Orlando started out, I guess, uh, there's the, the Kennedy Space Center's nearby, Disney World, obviously, mm-hmm. Universal Studios. That It's quite a happening place. Uh, I was down in the airport down there in Orlando, uh, probably about 10 or so years ago, 
I couldn't believe how busy it was. It was just, how, how old were you when we went to Orlando the first time? When we went to two, Disney World? Two. Two years yeah. old. Yeah. yeah. And it just, the park had just opened. It was one year old. In fact, I remember that there were still parts under construction mm-hmm. when we were down there, that, that this was just such a rage. So there you go. So Scott and I, at, at you know, when he was two and I was five, we we got in the uh, the station wagon, got the pulled the camper behind us, and we went down to Florida. That's right. The 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 Mercury what was it the Lincoln Park? Yeah, I think it was, it was with Ford the Mercury. Uh, it was no, nah, it wasn't. Ford, it, it was. It, I'm pretty sure it was, was a it, Mercury. Yeah, yeah, it was a Mercury. It yeah. had wooden wooden yeah, right. wood, the fake wood panels on the side, just like in uh, it, you know when the Griswolds were going to Wally World. Only instead of pea green, we had kind of a a, a yellow puke yellow was, i guess it was definitely know. yellow yeah. <laughs> all right so uh let's get right into it uh this is something we've done this format before and i thought it'd be good to bring it back every every few months because everybody likes music and when we did this last we focused on uh, january of 1987 which was your senior year of high school and i mm-hmm. thought all right so the next time around we'll i'll take a turn so we'll We'll do the um, we'll do the top forty, the Billboard top forty, for my senior year in high school, and I kind of picked the same time. So, the the date for yours was January thirty first, nineteen eighty seven. The reason I was specific on that is because it was such a strong top forty. Mm, it was. It had so many from top to bottom. It had such good recognizable songs that have stood the test of time that so many people can recognize even today. So. When I went back and looked at the um, you know the top forty from from my senior year, I thought, well, let me try and sort through here and see if I can find what I think might be my favorite time period. So I actually ended up being the same time where yours was January thirty first, mine was February first, nineteen eighty nine. Okay. So I think for anybody in the Gen X era, for a lot of us, we didn't necessarily go straight from high school to college. And I know you did, but then you stopped and then you end up going back when you were a little bit older. I waited many, many years before I even attempted college. So for me, my senior year was the end of the road. It was the end of education for me as I knew it. Right. So I think for those of us that didn't go to college right out of graduation in high school, I think you really kind of hold on to those, the, you know, the last few months of your senior year a little bit differently because you know, that's it. And you got to be an adult now. You're mm-hmm. going to have to go out and get a full-time job and you're going to have to do this and that. And uh, for me, I think as a senior in high school, I, this particular time of the year is like, I'm going to have fun no matter what. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to go out with a bang. And so this, this February, I was like, let's go, let's, let's have fun. Let's hang out with my friends and let's, and I think the music kind of reflects that time period. You had said before about, music being happy, mm-hmm. being uplifting. And I think you'll see a lot of that in this in this countdown. Well, I I, I knew the year because you told me it was going to be 1989. And I, I wasn't surprised because, you know, that was your senior year. Um, so I, but I had no idea what the month was. So I, I got to admit, you know, I, I did try to prep a little bit and and listen to Spotify, you know, our main sponsor here, that they, they had a... a playlist that was out there a spotify created playlist and the top hits of 1989 so i'm 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 thinking that a lot of those hits might be on the list but but one of my takeaways from listening to that was it was still pretty upbeat still pretty positive it 
It hadn't really gone as we're going to see when we eventually get into around 92, 93, where it kind of like the grunge movement starts to come in, where things are changing. So in 1989, it's still very much a happy time. It's still, it's still the go, go, go 80s. Right. And when we start the countdown, we're actually going to start with number 40 with an artist and the song we're, we're actually not going to be able to play the actual song because it is not on the Spotify playlist. And this particular artist has most of their catalog missing, probably for you know contractual reasons. Oh, probably. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I ran across that a lot in nineteen with nineteen eighty nine countdowns. Oh, interesting. Which surprised me because you would think the the nearer you get to where we're at now, which is two thousand and twenty three. You would think that all the songs would be there, whereas I had no issues with any of the other countdowns I've ever pulled up before, whether it was even in the early 80s. I was always able to find at least some version of the song. But for our uh, number 40 in our in our top 40 countdown from February 1st, 1989, I thought it was interesting because this is this is a well-known artist. This is not the song. It is not. Is this Anita Baker? It is Anita Baker. Yeah. And I really liked oh, yeah. Anita Baker, the artist. Mm-hmm. So the song that I'm playing now is Caught Up in the Rapture. The actual top 40 song is Just Because. And I know our cousin Jeff High is listening. And Jeff, tell me I'm wrong. But I believe Just Because was the song you and your wife Deb danced to as your first dance at your wedding reception. Do you remember that? I don't know how I remember that, but I'm pretty sure I do. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was Anita Baker's Just Because. That was number 40 on our countdown. So it's interesting that Anita Baker would have this song up on Spotify. Correct. But the rest of her catalog. I mean, was there other things from her catalog? Yeah, there's a few other songs that that are on the catalog. Um, You know, Sweet Love was probably her biggest hit. And that was the first one that came out. I believe it was around 1986 late 86 maybe early 87 Mm -hmm. and i just i i've said many times that i'm a big fan of r&b music sure and for for a period of time anita baker i believe you know was the queen of r&b in the in the mid 80s on the charts she has she's got a great soulful voice and just because it's a great song Mm -hmm. i wish i would be able to play it but unfortunately it's not on the playlist so okay that's our number 40 song. All right, so we, we'll get that out of the way. That's kind of why I wanted to, to go with a list where I didn't want to go down to like number five. And then we don't get to hear and it. We and can't, we can't play Here's the song. Here's the number one song. All right, so let's go to number 39. Very recognizable band. I 
mean, I know the song. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the artist. Okay. Give a little. Let me let you get to the chorus. I mean, I have some guesses. I don't know. Okay. I'll give you a little a little hint. So, there was a lead singer that was a part of this band that left in the middle of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Went on to a solo career. Is this Chicago? It is Chicago. Yeah, okay. This is Bill Champlin. All right. Because he, uh, he, he sounds so familiar, but it's like I can't pick the lead singer's voice out. He sang uh, probably two more recognizable songs that he was the lead singer of were Your Hard Habit to Break. Yeah. And I don't want to live without your sure. love. I don't want to live without your love was on this album, which was Chicago '19. And uh, you know, he at this point he's sharing uh, lead singing duties, but not with Peter Cetera, who had moved on to other things. But uh, you know, Chicago, I really credit these guys for having more staying power because obviously in the '70s they lose Terry Kath, who mm-hmm. died, and then they come back. And they're bigger than they were before. And Peter Cetera is the focal point. And Cetera ends up leaving the group. Mm-hmm. And then they end up having two more very successful albums, Chicago 18 and Chicago 19, that came out after Peter Cetera left. And by the end of the decade, they are still cranking out hits. I, I give those guys a lot of credit. Yeah, th- this was... You know, do you remember, Did you, I don't know if you looked into it, how far this song eventually charted? It was. It made it into the top twenty. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't a top ten hit. Yeah. It's not one that I really hear anymore today. Mm-hmm. So it's not one of you know like the all timers. But the it's it was something that I think it was probably on the radio for a few months and then just kind of disappeared. And I haven't thought about it probably since nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. It was. Uh, you know, at this point, it's one of those songs that you heard quite often on the radio i don't think i ever saw a music video for this i i have no mental image of one yeah because usually when when you hear like a top 20 song you almost immediately your brain takes it to the music video sure. that you saw on mtv and i don't remember seeing this on tv uh, but you know chicago this was i think their third hit off of chicago 19 and they were still very much a solid uh, uh music hit making group which Ironically, Chicago 19, David Foster had been so integral in the earlier albums. Mm-hmm. They actually went with a different producer in this in this album. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, but when I heard the song again, I thought for sure this has got to be a, a David Foster right. right because and that, just, that was going to be my comment. It kind of has that sound to it. but Very, they, very well produced, very solidly written. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say there was a formula, but, they, you know, it's kind of like when when you're writing a thesis or, or when when you're writing an essay, right? You know, you have your thesis statement, you have you know your, your supporting your structure to it, your three points. Then you do a conclusion. So it, there's a structure, and to me, a David Foster song is kind of like that, just professionally structured. And that's not him. That's kind of interesting to yeah. hear that. Yeah, but obviously Chicago had kept that kept that similar sound going. So that was number thirty nine, February first, nineteen eighty nine. Let's go to number thirty eight. Another. Well-known singer. It's no secret. It's no secret. Sounds a little dated, right? 
Sounds happy. I do not know this song. <laughs> you weren't listening to this out in Heston? Uh, no. Okay. No. I, I mean, the voice sounds familiar. Yes, because you would definitely remember the song that came out in the fall of, well, actually, it was released late summer, but of the fall of 1988. It was all about doing the locomotion. Oh, it's Kylie Minogue. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, I'm going to just start guessing because I was thinking Kylie Minogue. It just you know just because of the voice, but I, I don't know the song. I, I do not remember this at all. You know how we talked about with other other groups and other famous albums. Now I'm not putting Kylie Minogue's you know, debut album up there with Appetite for Destruction, but this is another example of an album that took a while to get started. She released it in 1987. Okay, and it wasn't until the Locomotion hit in the summer of '88 that she was. So the album had been out for the better part of eight or nine months before she even saw any real success, at least in the United States. Uh, you know, she's originally from Australia. Right. She was an actress that was trying to get a singing career going. She was on a, a soap opera down there called Neighbors, which is a very well-known soap opera in Australia. We do have listeners in Australia. Uh, started the, uh, jump-started quite a few acting careers and music careers. Uh, Natalie Imbruglia, she was on mm-hmm. the show Neighbors as well. Okay. She had a hit song in the 90s. So, uh, but, but for Kylie Minogue, it was, it ended up being a really successful album for her and everybody was doing the locomotion in, uh, in September of 1988. Yes, so. they were. Yes, they were. But this, this was a follow-up hit. And okay. It didn't chart much higher than where it's at here at 38, but it do was. Do you remember uh, it? Barely. I do remember the song, um, because I had one of my, one of my friends, the, one of my, the girls that we hung out with. She had this tape, and okay. it was in her car all the time. So I do remember hearing it in her car. I mean, it sounds of the time. It sounds mm-hmm. like 1989. Yep. So that was number 38, Kylie Minogue. It's no secret from her debut album, Kylie. Let's go to number 37. This is one of my favorite songs of the 1980s. And I really, if Sean can get this, mm-hmm. I would be very impressed. Oh, I know this song. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with who it is. It took me a while to learn the name of the group. There once was a time and there once was a way We had something going into my display. Give me a clue. Attention to me It's not really a group, it's a DJ. Oh, I'm not going to get it Yeah. The, he went by the name of Concan. No, never would have come up with that. K-O-N-K-A-N. Concan, he's originally from Canada. He was a DJ up there. He was inspired by some of the club music that was becoming a thing. You started to have groups out there like Mars and Pump Up the Volume. Mm-hmm. Sure. This, this was really the, the basic, the groundwork of what became the new techno dance music that started in the late 80s and ran into the early 90s. I, I've heard this song a ton. And I've, I've, I don't think I've ever known who the, who the artist was. This was one of the most fun songs to dance to 
when you're with your friends. Yeah, sure. Because uh, it, it's a goofy song. It's a goofy music video, and it's just all it's just all hamming it up. And we just we love jumping around to this song. Oh yeah, and this is a you know this is a song that uh, I, I can. I don't know if it was just limited to the clubs. Well, if I heard this on the radio a whole lot. Oh, I heard it on the radio. Did you? F- okay. FM 97 played this a lot. Okay. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's fun. Well, I remember this, this part. Yeah. Be- because he was inspired by a country song. <laughs> Which one? I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. All right. This, the na- that's the name of the song. It's called I Beg Your Pardon. And then in parentheses, it's I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Okay. Um, not exactly a country song, but <laughs> hey credit the guy for for coming up with something i'm just waiting for the uh for the one part here at the chorus i think it's interesting that in all these years do you want to hustle Hey, there you go. I, I find it interesting that in all these years, I was never curious en- enough to ask who this was, it, because I've heard it a lot. Yeah, it's to this day, I really I, I enjoy I enjoy the song a lot. It's it's one of my favorite one of my favorite songs to bring up from the past. It is uh, Con Can, I beg your pardon, number thirty seven in our top forty countdown from February first, nineteen eighty nine. Let's go into number thirty six. Oh well. There, is there a Gen Xer who doesn't know Millie Vanilli? This is the song that got it all started. Uh, it's like, girl, you know it's true. Maybe for the Gen Xers that had the cassette tape or the CD, I should go back. Let me let me bring this down, and then I'll go back to the very beginning because, yeah, I I always thought the beginning was was pretty funny. So let's let's listen in. So what are you doing back? Well, I sat back and thought about the things we used to do. It really meant a lot to me. You mean a lot to me. I really mean that much to you? Girl, you, you know, know it's true. true. And there you go. Uh, folks, my brother was a huge Millie Vanilla fan. <laughs> I was. You were? I mean, I, I borrowed your cassette. My, um, one of my friends from high school, Roman Hess... We affectionately called Scooter. He and I would listen to this and then do the Millie Vanilli chest bump, like they did in the music video. Sure. So, needless to say, we weren't getting a whole lot off the ground, but it was fun to do the chest bump. Were you devastated when the news came out that they weren't really singing the songs? Um, when I heard them speak, I was kind of like, I'm not putting the connection together yeah. here. Yeah, there were there there were more holes in their uh, story than Swiss cheese. I just remember at the time thinking, "All right, what's the big deal?" Yeah, I you know people were lips starting to lip sync all the time, and yeah, why those guys got singled out, I I, I don't know, but um, it was a good album. You know, I really did. It was a really good album. It, Is this the only Millie Vanilli song on the list? On this list, yeah. Uh, yep. When would that have come out? Because you said this is early on, right? The, so it was released in in probably January, February of 1989. So this okay. this had just gone on the charts because this ends up going to number one, and it's on its way up. And they they had what like three, four? They top? have they had four top yeah. tens. Yeah, yep. So this was this was a big girl. You know, it's true. Is the name of the album, and Millie Vanilli. 
Fab and Rob were the uh, were the two guys who posed as the singers. Right. But it was a fun album, and it fit the time in which it was released. It was like catching lightning in a bottle. Well, so. I watched um, you know a little bit of a YouTube documentary where they were interviewing the ori- the artists that actually performed mm-hmm. on the album, and. Uh, you know, the, the one guy said, he goes, he goes, at the time, I was like, you know, 49, 48, 49. He goes, I didn't really want to tour anymore. And he says, I, I w- but I still want to be creative. Right. You know, so it was going to be hard to sell to a bunch of uh, teenagers, you know, the 50-year-old middle-aged guy out there singing the song. But if you could package it with, you know, a couple of good-looking guys from, well, they were from Berlin, weren't they? Uh, Fab, Fab was from Berlin. He was from Germany. And Rob was from France. Okay. And, but I think Rob had moved up to Germany. Yeah, I think at the time they, they both came out of Berlin. They kind of knew each other. Right. Well, uh, Frank Farian, who was the producer, he was from Germany. He and, was from West Germany. I remember you know, one of the other singers on there, like one of the back up singers, and she was just saying that it was just highly secretive, this whole project, and that you weren't allowed to be recording when anyone else was recording. Mm-hmm. So they didn't get in a room together. Everyone just came in separately, and they didn't know who the other performers were. Right. Okay, so that was our number 36 song, Girl You Know It's True by Millie Vanilli from February 1st, 1989. I don't know if you're going to get the name of this next group, but I'm sure you'll recognize the song. It's a good song, and they were one-hit wonders. A uh, girl band? No. Oh, okay. I remember the song. Uh, I don't know the artist. So the name of the band is called Boys Club Band. Okay. All right. The it was two guys, and the one of the singers, the guy who's singing now, not the lead singer in this song. He was one of the original members of the Jets. Okay. From Minneapolis. He was sure. one of the brothers. They'll start going into the chorus here if you haven't recognized it yet. I absolutely remember this song. So they specifically patterned this song after another group. Want to take a guess as to who you think they might be? Well, to me, it's got a Miami sound to it. Okay. So, Miami Sound Machine? That's, I mean, it's a good guess. You got the, the era right. They were huge fans of Wham. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. They were like George Michael. They they were infatuated. And they they made no bones about the fact that they wanted to make a, a, a sound that sounded like Wham because they, they loved um, Ridgely and George Michael. Okay. Sure. I, I can hear that. So, that was our number 35 song. And what's the name of the band again? Boys Club Band. Yeah. Okay. Keep it simple. <laughs> sure. Uh, but again, it's it's a good song, um, and it just it takes me right back to that time in my life when I was enjoying life my senior year in high school, and I was doing as little homework as possible <laughs> and trying to spend as much you know, like trying to crash course my friends because I knew at some point we we're all going to go our separate ways. But isn't it kind of interesting that you know you get a three year. Uh, difference or not two year just a two year difference from 87 to 89 where you know i knew you know all the songs there mm-hmm. on the list and you fast forward two years and my my musical tastes have changed a little bit it did i mean i, I still listened to this music and liked it so it would have been on 
the back in the background on the radio, I wouldn't, you know, we didn't have our phones back then to look and see who actually who's singing. Right. But I, I've, I've heard, I would have heard maybe other than Kylie Minogue, you know, that song, you know, everything else I heard and I would tune in, but I wasn't necessarily a fan where I, I was following it closely. Right. And I know you, you were very much into the harder rock music and you right. stayed in that, in, in that era. And I was actually thinking about at some point, I'm probably going to bring back a 1990 top 40. Okay. Because that also has a big wide range of a mixture of music kind of like this one you we're going to get a little bit more diverse right now we're very much into the kind of the club mm-hmm. dance music it it definitely starts to section out here as, as the countdown goes on that's why i thought especially when we get into like top 25 top 20 top 10 this this list gets stronger and stronger so uh, but i again one of my favorite songs of the year for that one as i remember holding you off of their album i remember holding you by boys club band our number 34 song comes from a group and i this is one of the more underappreciated albums it was very successful when it came out and for me this again this is a big part of the soundtrack of my senior year of high school but i was a really big fan of this particular group and they had a follow-up album that was really good also but man this this first album i i was all over it Glass Tiger? That is a good guess. They're kind of like England's version of Glass Tiger. Glass Tiger's from Canada. Right. Uh, these these guys are British. I, I know the song. They all went to school together. They're, they're not... They're like our age. These guys were really young when this album came out. Oh, I, I mean, I, I could sing it. I mean, I, I know the lyrics. So the name of the band is Breathe. Sure. They okay, also had sure. some big, big hits. How Can I Fall? Absolutely. Hands yeah. to Heaven. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, This all that jazz was one of my favorite albums of my senior year. And the music, to me, still holds up. I think this is a very, very mm-hmm. strong album. If anybody, you know, if I could recommend something for a person to go back and revisit... I would recommend for them to come back because these guys not are good players, but you know it's uh, great singing as well. And this is one that doesn't get played as much as the other two that you mentioned, right? Yeah, this is this was the third release of the other you know of the album, and this was probably the one that charted the lowest, right? But this is "Don't Tell Me Lies." I like it. That's a good song, and that is number thirty-four in our. Top 40 list. Here, I, I thought I had one. I, I thought I had Glass Tiger. You should be able to get this next one because I... I think Nilly Vanilli is the only one I've come <laughs> up with so far. I, I always consider this a Christmas song, and you'll understand why. Oh, yeah. Was this from the movie Scrooge? Yes, sir. Yeah. Can you 
take a guess as to who's singing? Well, it's not Bill Murray. Um, it was that Al Green. Al Green? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I remember uh, the video. How about the female? Aretha Franklin? No. Annie Lennox. Oh, that's right. Annie Lennox. From that's, Eurythmics. That's right. But I, I always considered this a Christmas song because it was in a Christmas movie, Scourged. Sure. Yeah. And again, you know, Scourge was released in, you know, the winter of 1988. So this would have been my senior year. And this was uh, one of the movies that my friends and I went and saw in the movie theater. And this is the song that plays at the very end of the movie. So even now to this day, it's on my Christmas playlist for uh, Christmas songs. It's not something that I, I think I hear a lot of at Christmas time. In the high house, you do. <laughs> well, maybe your house, but you know, I, I have a I have a hard and fast rule that I won't listen to Christmas music except right after Thanksgiving, up until Christmas. Right, we have the same rule. And so, you know, all the the local radio stations want to fight each other who who can start playing the earliest. And I don't know that I've really ever heard that you know get played. Yeah, and I don't think typically the public thinks of that as a Christmas song, but I've always, I always have just because of when I saw it and it was in a Christmas music mm-hmm. and I thought that's to me, it's a Christmas song, but it's a very happy up, uplifting song, which is very um, consistent with the times that we were at, at that particular point, because, you know, we're at the end of the eighties and things are rolling along pretty well for, when, for everybody. When you uh, heard that song or saw the video, uh, you, did you know Al Green? I had heard of Al Green. So you knew Annie Lennox a lot more. Oh, sure, yeah. I recognized her right immediately. And I had known, I had heard of Al Green, but I didn't know Al Green songs. And they made, I just remember on MTV, they made a big deal about Al Green doing the song. So you knew it was a big deal, even though you probably couldn't, I couldn't have named any song other than Let's Stay Together, I think. It's probably the one that everybody knows. But that was number 33 on our Top 40 list from February 1st, 1989. One of my, this is, uh, this next artist has been around for a long time. I don't know if you'll remember this song, but it was a major, major hit. It climbed up the charts uh, all through the winter and into the spring of 1989. This was a big hit for a guy and, and an album that I love and own on vinyl to this day. Oh, well, I know this one. Okay. Yeah. So this is Rod Stewart, and my heart can't tell. I forget. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. You're there. Yeah. My heart can't tell me no. Yeah, there you go. Let's see now. Here's that's a song that I see the video immediately in my head. I don't want you to come around here no more. I beg you for mercy. Yeah, this this is a good song. Very good song. This is the, This is. I remember there was kind of like a. Almost like a, a trilogy of videos that he yes. released at the same time, and this was kind of the final one. Yes. Yeah, the same the, the same actress was in uh, the first one, and... Um, it's Infatuation. No, that was 84. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. No, I, yeah, I know which one you're talking about now. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the videos are, are pretty memorable. In the first video, he plays a bartender. Right. And then Forever Young is a classic. And then this one, to me, I was this was my favorite song of the album. And I just played it over and over and over again. Of course, the album is out of order. 
And like I said, I have it. I have it on vinyl at home, and it's one of my favorite my favorite albums to listen to even to this day. So, what are the hits off of this album? Forever Young, Forever Young, this one, and Lost in You. That's right, Lost in You is that was the first one that was released, and where he, he plays a uh, bartender in a strip club. So, Forever Young. I was actually thinking about this song recently, mm-hmm. and with Rod Stewart, and it kind of marked a change in him in in his style where he went from you know kind of being the rocker coming out of the the 70s and and through the early 80s and he kind of stayed with that you know he's he's got the rooster spiked hair he's 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 very much wearing the loud clothing and right about forever young he starts to become a little more introspective you know he's got a son in the video right and he um kind of changes and becomes a little more that crooner that he eventually morphs into you know in very few, you know, short years, and because very even more successful, I think. Yeah, uh, you you make a good point. Early in his career, I you really probably couldn't name too many ballads that Rod Stewart sang. I, the first one that pops into my mind is Maggie May, sure. but that's all the way at the beginning of his solo career. And up to that point, you know, he kind of became the. You know, I don't know if he's trying to emulate Mick Jagger, but that's kind of the direction that he was going. And then, yeah, this is a definitely much different turn, and I think it's career sort of patterned that way in that direction that's a good point that he went went that way afterwards yeah and it, it seems like this this was the the change and you know like for every young specifically it's it's not much of a of a you know that let's party it up rocker and we're here it's it's very much you know a soft stylish ballad and i can almost visualize his wardrobe changing as mm-hmm. well yeah um and one thing you'll notice about this particular countdown is there's probably as many ballads and slow songs as there are up-tempo in, because you know the first five or six songs, they're all dance music, but there's quite a few ballads in, in this uh, top 40 countdown. So. Now, I, I, you know, I admit, I really liked Millie Vanilli as well. I mean, right. I, I, I just thought it was a lot of fun. But this was the type of music I would have listened to. Sure. And that was Rod Stewart, number 32, off the album out of order my heart can't tell me no let's go to number 31 one of the most recognizable artists of all time and i think uh, you won't be surprised Princess the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, the Smooth Criminal. You know, for, for Michael Jackson, and you're correct, was that he followed up Thriller, which was the best-selling album of all time, still is to this day, and he comes out with Bad, which is almost as successful. You take those two albums, just those two albums, and you're looking at probably 70 million copies worldwide. Not bad. Amazing. This song, this album, Bad, actually had more number ones than Thriller. Now, Thriller, just about every song on it, went into the top ten, but not all of them went to number one. Okay. This one, this Bad actually had more number ones on it, this being one of them, Smooth Criminal. Do you remember the video that came out with this? Did you sure. ever watch it with yeah. Joe Pesci? Uh, boy, I don't know about Joe Pesci. I just remember him with a hat. Okay. So the, the condensed version that they showed on MTV, there's actually an extended video, kind of like Bad. Remember how they did the sure. long acting with, with uh, the song Bad? 
So they did the same thing with Smooth Criminal, and Joe Pesci was the bad guy in the video. But it was like it was like a twenty minute video. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen it. And he plays the character in the the scene where he's in the bar doing the dancing, does that famous lean mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. Uh, that was taken out of this extended video, and they just condensed it. That's why, if you if anybody ever goes back and watches the short version on YouTube. How it, that's why it's shot the way it was because it took all that dancing together and just scrunched it down into like a three and a half, four minute video. And then, I don't know, about 20 years later, Alien Ant Farm does a pretty good version of this song. Very good version, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a good song. It's been covered, like you said, I think Alien Ant Farm took it to number one, if I'm okay. not mistaken. So it went to number one twice. But that was Smooth Criminal, number 31 in our countdown. And we go to number 30 again, another famous singer. Not necessarily one of the signature hit songs, but this this received quite a bit of airplay when it first came out. Song. Okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to think of who the artist is. She was a big part of our Ladies That Rock episode. I'm talking Joan Jett. Joan Jett. So, hey, Little Liar. Little Liar. Yeah. Well, you know, it was about, she had just come off the, the hit, I Hate Myself for Loving You. Correct. Same album. Yeah. Oh, there's her raspy voice. Yeah, so the, I Hate Myself for Loving You is kind of the signature song. The album is called Up Your Alley. Sure. And I Hate Myself for Loving You was the first song to come on, and it's probably the most recognizable, identifiable song off of this album. I wish they would play more Joan Jett music because I think we, you and I both commented on I, you know, I Love Rock and Roll. She's got so many more good mm-hmm. songs than just that. I wish... They would bring songs like this back from the dead. Sure. Because this is a good, this is, you know, this album, I Hate Myself for Loving You, this song, Little Liar, they're good songs. I wish I could hear more. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's a good point, Scott, where this, this is a song that I'm enjoying this right now, and mm. it's bringing back a lot of good memories. And why this has not made the rotation? You know, when I, I told you I listened to a Spotify playlist, I think I heard I Hate Myself for Loving You, but this was not on there. Yeah, and this was one of the, this was an album where Joan Hoda has been known to do a lot of covers. Right. This is all original material. This album was pretty much all original material. I think she did one cover. Uh, of a song on the first side, on side A. Other than that, she wrote either wrote or co-wrote all the songs. She did a lot of work with Desmond Child, and this has a very Desmond Child sound to it. And I, she co-wrote that song with him 
on on this particular song, Little Liar. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up. Where with you know Joan Jett, her biggest hits for the most part have been covers, mm-hmm. you know, and but then she, I, I did know that she eventually started working with Desmond Child, and they they wrote. Um, there's a song, an Alice Cooper song that I always really liked. It's called House of Fire. Mm-hmm. And it's a Desmond Child, Joan Jett song. And when you, when you hear the song, you can kind of hear her singing in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it was kind of right around the same time that they were kind of partnering. And so you have someone who didn't really write a lot early on, but then for whatever reason, maybe she's got, gained some confidence, maybe pairing her with, with Desmond helped. But yeah, there was a little a period where she did write some material. Yeah. Yeah, and I again, maybe it's because when she released this album, we we mentioned this in a previous episode that she actually came down into Lancaster and performed. I remember that was a big deal. I didn't get to see the concert. Was it at this time of this album? It was the it came she came down here in right in the summer of 88. Okay. Is when I hate myself for love and you came out. So she was she was promoting the album right after it was released, but she came down to Lidditz, PA, and which is just down the road from where we're at right now, and did a did a concert. I just remember it's cool. I I was a Joan Jett fan before, and and so it kind of made me pay a little bit more attention to this particular album. So that was number thirty in our top forty countdown from February first, nineteen eighty nine. Number twenty nine is not going. I don't know if anybody would not know recognize this particular song. This was starting to make its way down from its high point, but it it was still in the top 20s at this particular time, but I'll let you go ahead and say it. Well, Chris, this is, uh, we're going to go to the Paradise City. There's Axel, so this is Guns N' Roses. So while I was not necessarily listening to a lot of the other songs that we've played so far, this is what I was listening to. Sure. I mean, this is, I was into albums at this point, and I certainly had appetite for destruction. I think what makes Gen X so special, particularly when you're thinking about music in the 80s more specifically, is it was not even a, a thought to anybody to listen to all these songs on Top 40 Radio. Sure. So you would go from, you know, bubblegum pop to a Rod Stewart, who a guy who'd been around for a long time, to a Joan Jett, to now Guns N' Roses. So now you got heavy metal in our in our top forty countdown. So it was it was all over the place, but yet it all kind of meshed together, which to me kept it from getting boring. I think it kept it to me it kept the music fresh because you weren't staying on just one type of music. You could bounce from one to the next, and they're all good songs anyway. So, I, and I agree with what you just said. At this point, you have kind of a, of a, a mixture of genres. When does that change? When do we start getting where, uh, the point where you have categories and you kind of stay in your category? You probably started in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. I noticed a, a big shift when music started to get compartmentalized in the early 2000s. Okay. Like for me, I specifically think of the year 2003. And there was a lot of good music out in 2003, but it was like, well, this song's number one on the adult AC chart. This song's number one on the adult R&B. It's like, all of a sudden, everybody kind of got shifted and spread out. Not only that, but Top 40 Radio took a big hit in the late 90s, early 2000s, because 
I guess advertisers didn't necessarily want to market towards teenagers. Okay. So you saw this shift when these adult contemporary stations started rolling out. You and I worked for one. Right. And that was kind of the flavor of the time where you're you're catering more to the older audiences as opposed to the teenagers. I think that's probably where I okay. saw the biggest change. Okay, because I mean this was very typical. I mean to to have it where you would have you know just such Michael Jackson right next to Guns and Roses. It it's, it was business as usual. Right. Yeah, and and that that was that I'd say from the time MTV really started to get a stronghold in pop culture when you're looking at 1983, 1984, it was, whether it was watching videos on TV or listening to the radio, you're right. You would just, you would roll from one right into the next, you know, Motley Crue to Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. There was, and people would like both. Sure. I know we, you know, we certainly, we were, we're unabashedly fans of top 40 music. Yeah. So that was number 29, Paradise City by the Great Guns N' Roses off of their Appetite for Destruction album. Uh, and again, I don't want to compare Guns N' Roses to Kylie Minogue, but remember, you know, Guns N' Roses was really the first band that I thought of as far as groups that that album almost didn't make it, you know, as far as in terms of making them superstars. It was selling okay for a heavy metal mm-hmm. album or hard rock album. And then all of a sudden it just catapulted and took the next two or three levels to, to greatness but it took a, took a long time. It took them about a year for that to get any traction. Well, right now, you know, you're doing what February 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Appetite for Destruction was re- released like the fall of '87. Yes. So yeah. it, it's it is it's now at it's it's probably I don't know if it's at its peak, but it's you know the the train is running at this point. Yeah. What I remember about Guns N' Roses is when Sweet Child of Mine came out. That was the summer of 1988. I just remember you know, we we had talked about the the miniature golf shack at the water slide that mm-hmm. we used to work at, and the radio station used to do a, I believe it's called the top nine at nine or the top ten at ten. I forget, but Sweet Child of Mine was like number one every single night for <laughs> every night I was working at that miniature golf shack. It seemed like that was the number one song uh, request of the of the night. So, well, you know, back then we didn't have the internet. So oftentimes you would have a slow buildup to where an artist, you know, I, you know, I think you can compare like a, uh, the, how, you know, someone like a Kali Minow would have gained some traction and then move forward because that's kind of how it was done. And you, you allowed something, you know, bands and albums, a little time to breathe where I, I heard Duff McKagan talk about that, you know, no internet. He, they, they released the album. Eh, it's doing all right. They, they, they jump on a bus and they go around the world with Aerosmith. And they have no idea how popular they are because they're the opening act and they just literally come back to L.A. after the tour is done. And he said, we got off the bus and, and we we're walking around. People are dressed like us. And that's how long it kind of took for the fever to develop. And it was a long tour that they were on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, the video for Paradise City was shot, I believe, at Giant Stadium. It was. And uh, at that point, they were really starting to become a major act or but they're the opening extremely act. popular and they said even though you know aerosmith's on the permanent vacation tour which was a hugely successful album huge tour and people were leaving after the opening act 
because they only came to see Guns N' Roses and not to see Aerosmith. Well, I almost saw that tour in Philadelphia, and I, I, I now I wish I had. I'm kicking myself for not seeing it, but you know, me and my friend uh, Carrie Lapp, we were going to go, and we just wanted to see Guns N' Roses, right? And we debated whether we wanted to stick around and see Aerosmith, and I think that's ultimately why we didn't go to the show. Which <laughs> is a shame because, it, like I said, Permanent Vacation is is a, is a great album. And uh, one of your comeback stories from absolutely from uh, the comeback kids. So that was number twenty nine. Number twenty eight. I don't know if you're going to get this one. And this is a song that probably hasn't been played in about thirty three or thirty four years. Okay, I know the song. You do? I do. I'm, I'm trying to come up with the with the artist name. Um, they had the song that Wild Wild West, right? That is correct. What is the name of this band? At one point, he kind of wraps it in Wild Wild West. In the in the chorus, yeah, he does. So I'm going to try to think about. Oh, from the holy temples of Beirut to the factories of Japan, you gotta shine your shoes. Give it to me. Who is it? The Escape Club. That's right, the Escape Club. Yeah, Shake for the Sheik is the name of this song. This was the second one. This was the second song. Yeah, I, and this was a song that completely fell off my radar. I remember dancing to this at Rick's place when it came out, and then it went away, mm-hmm. and then not to be brought back, you know, until the magic of just now. I'm thinking I heard this on a countdown that they played on Sirius XM on the big '80s, and I thought, "Holy cow! I have not heard that song in 34 years." Oh, I I haven't either. I mean, I mean, I. You know, I 100% remember this song, and now that you say the Escape Club, sure, I remember. I liked it because this was kind of it combined some genres that I liked. You know, I, I, it obviously you got kind of the 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 rock guitar going mm-hmm. on. All right, that was I was all about that. It's got kind of a funky beat going to it as well. It does. It's it's one of those songs that has guitars in it, so it's got a little little bit of an edge, but it's a dancing edge. Mm-hmm. So again, like I said, we danced to this at Rick's place, which was a dance club. And even though I wouldn't necessarily consider the Escape Club, even the Wild 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 West was a great dance club song to, to dance along to. I wouldn't necessarily consider them a dance group, like kind of where we, you know, when we go back to like the Milli Vanillis of the sure. world that are specifically going towards that that dance. Con Can, I beg your pardon. That's absolutely 100% designed for people to go to a dance club and, and use. Shake for the Sheik, the Escape Club, I wouldn't throw them in that category, but it was a good song. It was a good song to dance to and have a good time. Number 28 on our countdown. Let's go to number 27. Very well-known song here. This is my all-time favorite Bobby Brown song. This is Roni. All-time favorite. This was Bobby Brown kind of cresting at the height of his powers in terms of popularity because he was blowing up the charts way back in one of our first episodes when we talked about 
uh, albums of the 1980s and Don't Be Cruel, which was this album, Mm -hmm. was the number one album in terms of album sales in the United States in 1989. So he was the king of... And this is really one of the first songs where we are going to start to see New Jack Swing come into play. Uh, I, I really was into the New Jack Swing. It was a great... Like I said, he worked with um, worked with. Oh, now I'm going dark on there. Freddie, Teddy, Teddy Riley, Teddy Riley. So this this is where he did a lot of work with Teddy Riley, Jimmy Jam. Yeah, you know, it's got that vibe. It's definitely got that vibe to it. And this was. Uh, he had "Don't Be Cruel," my prerogative, which were huge hits. But this was. This was a song that I know in my group of friends, the girls love this This song. is the jam right here. This was also played at Rick's Place. This is where you, if you could uh, find a girl to dance to, this, this was definitely a song to dance to. Roni, Bobby Brown, number 27 on our Top 40 countdown from his Don't Be Cruel album. Coming in at number tw- coming in at number twenty six is another well known band that was a big part of the entire decade of the nineteen eighties and certainly went for a different sound with this particular album. But they also wanted to get a little bit more of the dance club because dance clubs were coming back. At Duran Duran, yes, it is. All she wants, wants is yes, yeah. So as we're climbing up the charts, I'm starting to remember more of the songs. Yep. And this is, you know, whether if you're a fan of Gen X, this is not the era of Gen X that it, that gets spoken about a lot. I don't think. With for Duran Duran. In terms of like the the early early dance club music, because this is the precursor to a lot of the music that is going to come out in the early '90s, like the the pump up the jam and uh, technotronic. Mm-hmm. The the groups that are to come that really kind of lay the groundwork for that house music. This was kind of an evolving. Remember, MTV had started Club MTV with Downtown Julie Brown. Yep. And this was this was definitely an kind of a a ground that people and artists kind of were drawn to. I wouldn't compare it to disco per se, but I, like I said, I think people had disco hangover in the early '80s, and by the late '80s, they were ready to start getting out and and going to these dance clubs again. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you would have Duran Duran make this song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's definitely edgier it's almost for them almost an industrial sound yes and that i think that is well said about about techno dance music particularly at that time like i would really throw this song next to the con can i beg your pardon song like if i was dancing at a nightclub or rick's place with with my friends it would not shock me for them to roll right from I beg your pardon to all she wants is from True, one song to the but next. But had Duran Duran not come out with their prior work and this was all you knew, you 
I think you would have perceived them as a darker band. Sure. You know, where they, they were very light, uh, you know, you know, almost very polished, very bubblegumish with their image when they, during their heyday mm-hmm. uh, of the early to mid eighties. And then, you know, I, I do remember this period, you sure. know, and when they came out with this, it's, it was, they had grown up somewhat, you yeah. know, they, they were, they were older and I don't know if they were allowed to maybe mature by a lot of their fans. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, obviously it's a hit, you know, but I, I, I wonder if they didn't have that original image, if it wouldn't have been perceived a little bit better. That's a good point. And when you think back to the albums like uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, mm-hmm, which I like, uh, with songs like The Reflex on it, they were they were very much a teen idol band. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I don't think that Big Thing, which was the name of this album, I don't think that this was attempted to go back towards that teenage group. I think they wanted to mature their audience just a little bit more. Or maybe they felt like, okay, you guys were with us when we were when you were 13 now you're 18 19 and this is the music that we want uh, you know maybe they were making who knows maybe they were making it for their fans i don't know you know duran duran has obviously had a nice long career and i think they've shown that they have some staying power and they weren't necessarily just looking to kind of cash in and do the latest thing they they're artists and they i think wanted to evolve and go into the next thing and that's sure. kind of what they did here all right, so that was our number 26 song, Duran Duran, All She Wants Is. We're really going to take a turn here with number 25, but again, a signature song for a group. So this is Mike and the Mechanics in the Living Years. Did we play this one on a previous episode? We did, yeah. 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 That was the number ones for my birthday, yes. right? Yeah. There's Paul Carrick. And for, if you listen to the, the lyrics on this song, this is a very popular song, so different than everything else that's on this list. You, know, you mentioned Rod Stewart becoming a little bit more introspective. I don't think it gets more introspective than, than this particular song by Mike and the Mechanics. I wonder how this song resonated with the younger teenagers. Because, you know, at this time I'm like 21 years old, and I, I like this song. You, yeah. know, it, it, you know, I'm a little more mature, I've lived a life. And you can kind of be, start to become a little uh, retrospective and introspective. And I think that if I had been 13, I would have been like, yeah, it's an okay song. Yeah. But I definitely liked it, I think, more at 21. Yeah. You know, I think for the age that I was, and I was old enough to kind of recognize what the song was about. And I'm sure everybody who listened to the song probably identified with different people in their lives. But I remember... Uh, you and I have talked about this with, with our grandfather or, or mom's dad and how he was such a stoic farmer and had such, had such a uh, uh, personality-wise, wasn't the, guy, the kind of guy that could joke around with you. And I just remember when he would come over and, and hang out at our house and I thought to myself, I have nothing to say to this guy. And so funny that this song that reminds me of those those awkward moments where it's like 
what do you say to somebody who's who's older than you? Yeah. And I, I think for me personally, that's where this song really hit home. Okay. I mean, that's 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 a good take on that, and, and I'm sure that is something that you know millions of people have thought about when they've heard this song. You know, with with you know pr- probably you know relationships with parents, you know, and grandparents, and you know that is a thing. I mean, that's always been a thing where there's kind of a generational gap, and, sure. and sometimes where you might have been close to somebody at one point, there arrives a time where you're just so different and you really don't have much to talk about. Yeah. So that was our number 25 song, The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics off of their Living Years album. Number 24 is probably the signature song for this particular band. Hmm. Yeah. Trying to blank here, Scott. I don't know if I've heard the song. <laughs> of course, that's from a little Par- old Paris, <laughs> little old band out of Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, known as Poison. And this is one of the biggest power ballads ever, if not the biggest ever. This is Every Rose Has a Thorn. What amazed me about this song was how long it stayed on the charts. This song came out, I think it was in September of 1988. So it basically stayed on the charts from September, and now we're in February 1989. We're talking five months. A lot of times you'll see a song and it'll be incredibly popular, and then it'll disappear. This song seemed to hang on for almost my entire senior year. I remember singing it in October at our senior class hayride, and we're all we're all sitting in the in the hay wagon and we're singing this song and here it is february and it's still in the top 40 i think i was still singing it last week pretty amazing uh, you know for a song to have that kind of lasting power especially in an era and you gen xers will will agree for a song to stay number one for more than a few weeks that was me that meant something because there was so much coming up behind it so for a song to stay on the charts for that amazing amount of time really goes to show how how just how lasting that song is and it's still poison signature song to this day yeah yeah it it is it's you know for for good or for bad i mean this is the song that brett michaels is, is going to go down and be remembered for i still think it's a really good song i mean it is it's you know sometimes you know anytime you get too big or, or, or too popular where like in the case of this song, it really defined a genre where, because of this, everybody else had to jump on and, and write a power ballad. You know, as you said, Brett wrote the song, and it's debatable. You know, you go back and forth to the two parties involved as to what, you know what the lyrics are about. And Brett claims one side of the story, and his girlfriend claims another side of the story. But the, the simple fact of the matter is, uh, Ricky Rocket in Behind the Music said that when he was laying down the drum tracks on the song and he heard that basically the anguish in the lyrics and 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 Brett putting the song down he said he's choking back tears when he's drumming for this for the single and uh, you know a guy who saw his buddy in pain but it is you you can feel the pain in the song it's so hard to do for a heavy metal song you know coming from a from a you know heavy metal band to have a, a song like this where you yeah, I, I can listen to this, and I can I can kind of feel his pain in this in this particular in this particular song. And that was just a an excellent guitar solo that was playing while you were giving that little soliloquy right there. CC Deville, 
sometimes I think he doesn't get the credit he deserves. I mean, you know, he's not one of the, the guys that got in the van, the van and headed out west from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. You know, CC joined him when he was already out there. Right. Uh, but, that, you know, he, he, he was a, a quality musician. And I think that song kind of kind of shows it where, you know, you know, maybe you know, Brett and Ricky and, and Bobby weren't, uh, you know, they, you know, they packaged themselves really well. And that mm-hmm. was always kind of the thing. And, but, you know, you, you added CC, who, who I, I think demonstrates with that song, you know, what a fine player that he was and, and still is. And, and that's a, that's a well-written song. It is. And, you know, you're right. CC doesn't get the credit that he deserves sometimes because he came up with pretty much all the guitar riffs in Poison's music. The, the song Talk Dirty to Me, which was kind of the song that got them off the ground and out of poverty, was the basis of a CC guitar riff. That's mm-hmm. that's what he auditioned with when they, when they got together. So, yeah, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, Open Up and Say Ah is the name of the album, but you'll find it everywhere. It still gets played over and over again to to this day but that's the band poison number 23 let's go back to the dance clubs with another with another dance track I try to discover a little something I draw the blank on the, on the title of the song but this is erasure, erasure right erasure is correct Now you'll, you'll, you might kind of draw a little similarity here because the, the keyboardist and main songwriter for the group Erasure was in a previous band that ended up going on to quite a bit of international fame. And tell me, do you hear a little Depeche Mode in this? Yeah, I, I knew the story. Oh, you knew yeah, it. Okay. I, I knew okay. that, yeah. Yeah, so uh, a little respect. The album is The Innocence, but yeah, it was... Nice, nice little run here for Erasure. They had a couple, a couple of hit songs during this time. They did, and, and I think you're correct. You can, you can definitely hear a similar influence to what Depeche Mode would have had, uh, you know, at that same time. I, I like that synth sound. You know, it's, it definitely dates the song, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, just like I like hearing a a well dated Motown song from the '60s. Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. Or Bill Haley in the comments. Sure. Yeah. No, you're right. I. I think, to me, this is one of those songs that immediately takes me back to the era in which it was, in which the mm-hmm. song was released. Uh, you know, every rose has its thorn. Has been played so much over the last thirty-five years that you could think of any hundreds of moments when you heard the song. Nineteen ninety, when you and I saw them in concert, come on, Scott. <laughs> uh, Philadelphia Spectrum. That's right. All right. So that was our number twenty-three song, Erasure. A little respect off of their album from the Innocence. We're actually going to hear somebody with a second entry for the one and only time in this top 40 countdown. So we had touched on that this was the year of the individual. I swear to God, my guess for, for the repeat. This is my prerogative. Yes, sir. Another Bobby Brown song. So while I wasn't necessarily into 
all the pop music. I mean, because I, I was, you know, didn't know some of the early songs. I was heavily into Bobby Brown. Yeah, and that was. We were both fans of New Edition. Oh yeah. So we knew Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. I knew who Bobby Brown was before, before he even came out with this album. Sure, Mr. Telephone Man. We knew who he was. So he came out with an album before this, and it did not do well at all. Right. And as the, as the uh, you know the the story goes, he felt like he didn't get enough of his own say in making the album. He felt like he was kind of told what to do. So that's why when you hear a lot of the lyrics in this, it's, I'm going to do what I want to do. Hey, Teddy. You know, he brought in Teddy Riley, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, and they made this powerhouse album. And this this was this would have been a tough album to to make a second time. We, we said about Michael Jackson and how he somehow managed to go from thriller to bad, how unbelievably hard that is. Uh, you know, don't be cruel while it's not on the level of those. It's the next tier. And it's like, how do you follow up with something that's this spectacularly popular like I said it was the top selling album of 1989 in the United States it was and you know the, our, our listeners for the most part are going to remember just how big this was because you know for for a few months at least he was probably the biggest act in the world sure and it, it was where I mean he he has a career today that's that's built upon that you know it, it's he's able to go out and tour and he's a name and he's been on you know he's been all the, the celebrity shows and he marries Whitney Houston in large part because of the su- success that he had with the don't be cruel album right yeah it was he was all over the place the summer of 1989 he ends up uh, making a cameo appearance and recording a song for the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack on our own was the name of that song and that ended up doing very well I think that went top five so Bobby Brown, every little step would be the next single to come out after Roni, and he has on our own. Then he still has Rock Witcher, that was still on the Don't Be Cruel album. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the entire year he was all over the charts. He was just blowing it up all over the place. And as you can see, he's got two two songs in the top twenty simultaneously here in February of nineteen eighty nine. Yep, yep. Not surprised. All right, number twenty one, and again going back to another slow song. Well, I know this one. You know this, this one. one? This is yeah. Debbie Gibson. Yes, it is. Uh, I know. I get weak in your eyes. I'm not sure the title. Close. Lost in your lost eyes. Lost in your eyes. Yeah. I get lost there you go. I get lost. In your eyes. And I feel my now this song ends up going number one, and it's on. It's going in that direction. Uh, Debbie Gibson first album out of the blue this song this album electric youth electric youth didn't do quite as well as out of the blue but from the summer of i'd say 1987 is when in my dreams came out to this early 1989 so you're talking about a year and a half she was on the radio as much as anybody and this is another another major hit song for her I think she was trying to change her sound just a little bit and try and get a little more mature. The first album, Out of the Blue, she's still a high school student when she made it. Okay. So now she's out of high school. So I think she's trying to go with a little bit more of a mature tone. And this song was very successful. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's still played today. Yeah, sure. Uh, You know, Out of the Blue is the album that I think people probably gravitate more towards, have more hit singles in it. This Electric Youth was the 
the first single to come off of this album, and then this one might have been her most successful song that she ever released. Uh, but you're right, this one still gets played to this day, and this was definitely a ballad that I would have danced to at the uh, dance club. I remember Electric Youth kind of getting a lot of hype, like on MTV, like, sure. like they did a, kind of a making of the video, not not like a big special, but kind of like the MTV news where they they went to the set and. You know, Debbie Gibson, you know, at this point was, you know, second album for her. You know, it's it's always amazing when you can have success to kind of like what could be easily be a one hit wonder or I mean, you know, what she had a couple hits off that first album. Right. But the fact that she goes on and has an even bigger hit in the second one. I mean, that says something. Right. All right. So we're reaching the halfway point of our top 40 countdown from February 1st, 1989. I, you know, I guess we can't really end it with lost in your eyes. We got to kind of keep people excited about going to part two of our top 40 countdown. So let's close it out with my prerogative with Bobby B. And we're ready for uh, top 20 coming up with the next episode. Yeah, I'm feeling better about things, Scott. I'm starting to improve my, uh, my, my score here as we're moving up the countdown. So, yeah, let's keep it going. All right. So. We are the Brothers High. We want to thank you for listening to Gen X Playback, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we will talk to you next time. See you.